0: Good morning again. Over the past five years, we have uh, had the privilege of hearing 28 different GRC members share their unique grace stories. That's a title we use to describe uh, a real life, authentic testimony, an account of someone just like you, someone likely sitting right next to you on Sunday morning. Uh, These are stories that aren't airbrushed, they're real they're sometimes raw, they're sometimes painful, they describe seasons of adversity, struggles with faith, but these stories all point us to the grace of God that is accessed by faith in the risen Savior, Jesus. One of the reasons Easter is a great day for a a grace story is because uh, many of our stories highlight resurrection power. They highlight describing how God has brought about new spiritual life, how God has transformed death and sin into life in Christ. We might call it a new birth or a conversion story. This morning's grace story is someone who's been here at GRC exactly as long as I have, which uh, this week is 13 years because my first sermon here at GRC was in uh, 2004, uh, and it was Easter Sunday. And if you're wondering why not before, well, part of the reason is that Cedar is an introvert and she prefers remaining in the background. And part of it is also because uh, this church community is not about the Wongs, it is about what God is doing in and through all of us, all of our stories combined together to testify to, to uh, point to the power of the gospel at work here at Grace Redeemer Church, but still Thirteen years, it's about time, don't you think? Uh, Cedar plays a unique role here at GRC as a pastor's wife. She led the women's ministry for years. She's hosted countless dinners for newcomers and ministry leaders alike, and she has come to accept um, that people will make assumptions about who she is and have special expectations of her just because she's married to me. But her story will show you that she's just like you and just like me. Broken sinners in need of healing, renewing, life giving power that only comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. See here.
1: I told Peter I was going to say this first. He asked me, rarely does he ask me for sermon advice, but he did ask me this year, who am I going to get to do their great story? And I suggested that he do his, and here I am. <laughs> So perhaps we should hold him to next year. (laughs) I'm privileged to share my grace story with you. Small, quaint, simple, and quiet are words that describe the surroundings of my childhood. I grew up in a very small town. If you knocked on our neighbor's door in need of an egg, she was just as likely to give you one straight out of the chicken coop as out of her refrigerator. I grew up in a tight-knit family with aunts, uncles, grandparents, and cousins creating a social network that shared many holidays and meals together. I'm the eldest of three girls, all born within three and a half years. My family attended church regularly. I went to catechism class and passed through all the traditional rites of religious practice. I've always been pretty good at keeping the rules, so I enjoyed working hard in school and church. As idyllic as my childhood might seem, this was only a surface reality there was always the threat of unexpected disruption. While I always knew that my parents loved me, life circumstances often blurred that reality. Even though my father was a very religious man, he struggled with an addiction that quite literally strangled our family and disrupted any chance we had at leading normal lives. At a very young age, I learned to detect when Dad was under the influence I remember alerting my mother and then quickly assuming a protective parental role over my two younger sisters. It wasn't something that I learned or was told to do. It was just instinct. Beginning around the age of seven, I recall times when my dad was in such a violent rage that my mother had to literally flee for her safety. No matter what time of the day or night, I felt an obligation to try to hold my family together, whether that meant pleading with my dad to come inside the house calm himself and go to sleep or getting my sister's bags packed for school because my mom wasn't safely able to come home all of this wasn't, was consistently done under a thick veil of secrecy shame and even guilt that I was somehow responsible for the upheaval in my family kept me from ever telling anyone where was God in all of this certainly not protecting me or caring about my family well wait a minute There was the time, when I was five, that my dad knelt beside my bed and taught me the Lord's Prayer. I remember tears coming to my eyes. I brushed them off, asking why my eyes were watering. He said it was because I was praying to God, and sometimes that happened. Not to me, that didn't happen. In retrospect, I see that God was beginning to work in me, to soften my heart. Then there was the time when I was six. My father nearly lost his life in a car accident in which he suffered a severe head injury. He came home unable to speak clearly. I remember reading my father a book and him trying to sound out the words. Can I say that God preserved his life so that I would still have a father? Maybe. But his, with his return and recovery, the turmoil, bad decisions, and unpredictability also returned. Again, I found myself in situations that only led my heart to harden and my defense mechanisms to become stronger. I grew in awareness that I was angry at God. When I was 10 years old, my father did not come home from a hunting trip. After going missing for a week, another secret I was keeping. His body was found the Friday after Thanksgiving, just before winter came, and snow would have prevented his discovery for another four months. Was that time in God's mercy? I refused to see any glimmer of hope in this situation, because I had been keeping secrets my whole life. My first question to my mother when she told me he had suffered a fatal fall was, do we have to tell anyone? This was my last-ditch effort to maintain that, the outward facade I had so expertly built. Now I was really angry at God. He had blown my cover. My anger was mixed with guilt. Combined with the deep sorrow I felt over the loss of my dad, there was also major relief the unpredictability of his addiction was finally out of my life. The shame and guilt I felt over my relief was easy to hide behind anger. I wasn't only angry at God, but since my dad wasn't around to show me love anymore, something he was very good at doing, it was far easier, easier to grow ang- in anger towards him. As I entered my teen years, I became aware that the events of my childhood had formed my character and personality. It was easy to blame any bad qualities on my dad. It was easy to blame him for his bad choices that had been a financial burden to our family or that robbed me of a father to walk me down the aisle at my wedding someday. I was a typical teen. It was all about me. At this time, I was going through church confirmation classes. I was questioning the conventional morality taught by the church. I was feeling conflicted about some choices I was making and seeking a way to reconcile them. The class was using the Bible to answer questions and to learn more about church tradition and rituals. Something happens when you seek God in his word. You find him. In Deuteronomy 4, God cautions Israel that they will be scattered but provides this hope. But if you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you. Around that time, I made a new friend. She was a neighbor, only three houses down the road, but that was actually about a mile away. Our fathers had been childhood best friends and all-around troublemakers, even setting fire to a field in their younger days. They had been drinking buddies, best man in each other's weddings, and business partners who had had a falling out when she and I were very young. Because she had attended private school and I public, we didn't know each other, until the private school closed and she started riding my bus. Her family had also begun to attend a very different kind of church outside the tradition in which we had been raised. One night at a typical teenage girl sleepover at my house, she ended up talking to me about her faith. I asked some of the same moral questions I had been contemplating, and she had answers. She talked to me about the reality of sin, about Jesus dying on the cross for my sins, about his promise of eternal life in heaven, I had bits and pieces of all these things before, but that night it was like I was hearing them for the first time. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The Spirit was at work. It all finally made sense, and I wanted a relationship with God that was not about my anger towards him, but about his perfect love directed at me. That night, I put my trust in Jesus as my Savior. I had always known religion, but for the first time, I knew God the Father through faith in Jesus, God the Son. The love of my Heavenly Father was and is overwhelming and perfect. Unlike my Father's imperfect love, God's love is never changing and without blame or blemish. Over the years, God's love transformed my heart to move beyond anger and into a place of peace and forgiveness. That personality and faulty character that I blame my dad for was was actually crafted by God to be redeemed for his purposes. Being able to deal with unpredictability and to be ready for whatever may happen next is an asset when I consider my calling to be a mother, a nurse, and a pastor's wife. He granted me insight to realize that he is sovereign over every detail of my life. Nothing has ever happened outside of his control. I am not perfect and won't be the sight of heaven. His grace has been perfect for each moment, and will continue to be. Thank you.
0: Would you join me in praying? Lord, thank you for giving Cedar courage. Thank you for her clear testimony of your sufficient grace through trial, through suffering, through pain. Thank you, Lord, that you have brought new life, renewal, living hope, all only possible through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We give you praise this day, even in the midst of tears, for you are worthy and you are making all things new. We praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1? Um, that's not what your bulletin says, so uh, you'll need to dig a little to find 1 Peter on, uh, in the blue Bibles if you need to grab one of those. It's toward the end of the Bible. Find Revelation and work your way back a few books. Uh, Before I read from 1 Peter 1, though, and before I interact with Cedar's story, I want to set the foundation by focusing on why we've gathered for worship here on Easter Sunday and, to be frank, why we gather every Sunday to worship this risen King. On that first Easter Sunday, historians figure it was likely April 5th in the year 33 AD. Some women disciples of Jesus went to the tomb. They expected to see a large rock serving as a seal to the tomb and Roman guards, soldiers standing guard at the tomb because uh, some opponents of Jesus had feared that his followers would scheme in the days following his death to rob his body, hide it somewhere, and then claim some miracle. But the rock has been rolled away and the guards are nowhere to be found. And most shocking of all, the tomb is empty. There's just an angel sitting there, waiting. And he says to the women, He is not here. He has risen just as he said. The women run back to tell Peter and John, the leaders of the followers of Christ, who don't believe it, and so they go see for themselves they still didn't understand because as we all know death is it it's the end and the reversal of death was something beyond comprehension none of that yet made any sense but this is what would make perfect sense in the days and weeks to come there was no body Had any of Jesus' many enemies produced his dead body, they would have paraded it through the streets of Jerusalem and put to an end, once and for all, this rebellious sect of Jesus' followers. Christianity would have died out like so many other movements whose so called saviors and messiahs made amazing, stupendous claims of what would happen, and then they were dead and history rolled on. Had this been a conspiracy, any one of them could have cracked under pressure of persecution, under threat of death, and said, okay, 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 He really is dead. We hit Him. We threw Him in the Sea of Galilee. But they didn't crack because it wasn't a conspiracy. It was truth, truth that changed their lives, truth that would change the course of all history. This was a life transforming, death destroying reality. Jesus, God and man, the divine and human son of God, had defeated sin and death by walking out of that tomb. By defeating death, overcoming it, and many of those disciples who saw him in the weeks to come, over 500 of them, the Bible tells us, would go to their violent deaths knowing that this was true listen carefully these are god's words first peter chapter 1 starting in verse 3 praise be to the god and father of our lord jesus christ in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by god's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, this new hope, this living hope is reality because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And we give you praise for that historical truth, and we give you praise with anticipation for the day that will come when Jesus will be revealed, when He will return at the end of history, when He will finish applying resurrection power to His people, and to all of your creation. Until that day comes, Lord, we bask in resurrection power. We affirm to one another and to the world that our Savior, our King, is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen. In Cedar's Grace story, I want to highlight three effects of resurrection power. The first is Shadows into Light. Shadows into Light. So much of the pain and struggle that she described in her upbringing is uh, made vivid with some words we heard her share, like shame and guilt and secrecy and fear. It's heartbreaking to hear a 10-year-old react to her dad's death. With this instinctive reaction trained by brokenness, do we have to tell anyone? Secrecy is a pattern of life that fits under the metaphor of darkness. Here's a real-life example. Uh, Things happen at night. Someone just last month crawled under our church van, parked in the lot, and cut out the catalytic converter with a saw. It doesn't happen in broad daylight. Stuff happens at night under the cover of darkness. Uh, that's an example of what the Apostle John meant when he wrote… In John chapter 3, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, speaking of Jesus, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. If we might paraphrase, everyone who cuts out catalytic converters does it at 3 a.m. and not at 3 p.m. for fear that their deeds will be exposed. I'm not saying that the instinct of secrecy that Cedar was describing was her fault or that she was engaged in something dark. I'm not saying that at all. But Cedar needed light to free her from the cycle of secrecy, shame, and guilt. John's gospel again describes Jesus, first chapter. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's why He came. In fact, later on in His ministry, in public, He's standing outside the temple in Jerusalem during a feast, and He declares to everyone who could hear Him, I am the light of the world. Bold or crazy, depending on who you think He is. I am the light of the world. One more scene from John's gospel, John chapter 3, when a Pharisee named Nicodemus wants to meet Jesus, the Scripture tells us in the text that he goes at night under the cover of darkness, maybe worried that some of his colleagues would think that he's hanging out with the enemy, maybe worried that his Pharisee status would take a hit if they knew that he was going to ask biblical theological questions of this shady guy, Jesus of Nazareth, Here's how Jesus answers Nicodemus' questions. You need to be born again. You need rebirth. You need new life. There's life in darkness, and there's life in Christ. Life in darkness always includes elements of secrecy, shame, and guilt, hiding, hiding, Adam and Eve began to live in the shadows when they hid from God, when they covered themselves over with fig leaves, not just a physical covering, but also a spiritual symbol, that they were ashamed of what they had done and didn't want to face up to it in the the presence of God. That's what life in darkness always brings, those elements of secrecy, shame, and guilt. Um, very often it's because of other people's sin against you. But here's what Cedar also represented. What we always add to the toxic mix of other people's sin against us is our own sinful decisions. We add to it. We, we make it worse. We, we combine it in um, a new way. What do each of us need then? What Cedar described and what the Apostle Peter wrote new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That brings freedom, life lived fully in the light of Christ. No shame, no condemnation, because it's been nailed to the cross. The second effect of of resurrection power is religion into relationship religion into relationship. Peter writes that new birth also leads to an inheritance, verse 4, that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Think of an inheritance. Typically, only a son or a daughter stands to inherit from a parent. And and what that tells us is inheritance requires relationship. Um, Legal relationship, when it comes to a will, an estate being executed, and spiritual relationship, when it comes to describing God and his people, Cedar described a family background that involved church going, learning catechism, going through traditional religious rites of passage, but never having a relationship that was alive with god and, and that 's a common story that 's part of my own um, coming to faith. so many people from different cultural and religious and tradition backgrounds engaging in lifeless religion, going through the motions, doing things and speaking words in a formula sort of way to appease the God, whatever he, she, or it may be named. But only resurrection makes possible a relationship with a living God. And not just as worshipers who keep their distance, who pay their respects from afar but as sons and daughters in intimate relationship with a perfect father who promises to his children this inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Blessing, treasure, promises that never lose value. Cedar said, I had always known religion, but for the first time I knew God through faith in Jesus the Son. And that night during a teen girl sleepover, she experienced new birth resurrection from spiritual death into new life in Christ, from the shadows into the light. Didn't happen overnight, didn't happen instantaneously, from mere religion into living relationship. One last effect of resurrection power is pain into glory. None of our 28 grace stories over the past years sounds anything like a fairy tale, maybe it struck you as you were listening to Cedar and watching her emotions. Easter, of all Sundays? Peter asks her to share her story on, on Easter Sunday, and, and, but it's deliberate, not, not, not to inflict this upon my wife, but because Easter is not about just looking pretty and singing special songs and feasting with family and friends. We need new life We need rebirth. We need transformation. We need healing and wholeness. And to talk in a very authentic way about our real pain, and every single person in this room uh, would honestly say, you have real pain, that's what Resurrection Sunday should be about, celebrating what God has done. And if you don't know Jesus yet, grasping, perhaps for the first time, what God can do in your life. Because you see someone else who has walked a similar path as you, and you begin to wonder with a bit of kindled hope, is it possible that God could do the same thing in my life? None of our stories sound anything like a fairy tale. Every single one of them is raw and real and relatable to our own brokenness, dysfunction, relational pain, emotional turmoil. Easter is not a time to be overly sentimental. Resurrection is not simply a metaphor for the renewal of life. Yes, these are appropriate things to um, to remark at at Easter time. You know, flowers coming back to life. Well, they they did that in February, but that's that's not normal. Uh, you know, trees blossoming, eggs as symbols of. Of new life. Those are marvelous symbols that we can include in our Easter celebration, our Easter season. And yes, today is a day of celebration and feasting. But resurrection is glorious, it is awe inspiring, it is um, worshipful, it, it is worthy of dressing up and feasting only because Easter reverses the pain and suffering of Good Friday if you were with us on Friday, very different feel, right? Because we, we needed to reenact what Jesus went through. We needed to um, read the Scriptures and, in a sense, as much as we possibly could feel His pain, walk with Him. We call that service tracing the steps of our Savior. And the lights went out until we stood here in this room in darkness. But Easter is glorious because it reverses that. It gives us hope that pain and turmoil can be made new, something uniquely historic happened 2,000 years ago, something that addresses every human being's ultimate fear, which is death. Jesus overcame it. He walked out of that tomb in which He had been placed very dead on Friday and now was very much alive on Sunday. Death and darkness, pain and suffering, they're realities of our lives. We can't hide from them, but God. Those are gospel words. Verse 3, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then verses 6 and 7 add this dose of reality to ensure that we don't forget the ugliness of life or maybe more appropriately, we don't pretend that the ugliness of life is not as suffocating as it actually is. Here's this dose of reality, verses 6 and 7. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor. When Jesus Christ is revealed, whatever you've experienced in life, however angry you have become at God, at things, circumstances not being the way they're supposed to be, not being the way you want them to be in your life, whatever is your particular story, resurrection is the great reversal. One day, scars will be removed. Pain will be forgotten. Even death itself will be no more. That is the promise. Three effects of resurrection power. Let me turn them into three questions for you to consider. Do you live in the shadows? Do you live much of your life in secrecy or shame or guilt Do you or have you tasted the blandness and and, and maybe the numbness of lifeless religion going through the motions, perhaps it producing anger in your heart towards God because you've done the right things and you're not seeing Him respond the way He should treat someone who does good the way you do? And third question, would you honestly say that your life has been marked with suffering and pain? with so many things that are not right. If any of those are true, then your grace story has overlap with Cedar's grace story. There are themes in common. This resemblance and the new birth into a living hope that she has embraced is offered to you just as really as it has been offered to her and embraced. How do you embrace it? You simply place your faith in these history-defining truths. You believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, that He came, that He was the light of the world, that He lived a perfect life that you have not lived because you've sinned, you've done wrong against God, and that Jesus paid the ultimate price that your sins deserve by suffering hell on the cross instead of you. He went as your substitute, and then believing that Jesus rose again on the third day in victory. There is no Savior if He's dead, but He's alive. He conquered death. His resurrection is only the first, the model. And on this resurrection day, if you place your faith in this risen Savior, He will make you alive with Him. He will say, my rising was only the first fruits, and when I return at the end of history, your rising will one day mean that you will experience and live within and bask in only resurrection, power, and glory. And if you place your faith in this risen Savior today, His name is Jesus, then you join in this song, the glorious song that we will end our service with a few minutes later rise, O church, and lift your voices. Christ has conquered death and hell. Sing as all the earth rejoices. Resurrection anthems swell. Come and worship. Come and worship. Worship Christ, the risen King. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, only You can transform darkness into light. Only You can take guilt and deal with it finally because it has been nailed through your body into the cross and paid for. Justice has been satisfied. Only you, Jesus, when you return one day, will finish making all things new. It's all possible because of what we celebrate today not bunnies, not eggs, not the feast that awaits us but you're rising from the dead. You're walking out of that tomb. You're scoffing at death because it could not hold you. You are the sovereign king, king of kings and Lord of lords, and we praise you this day. Amen. So much of Cedar's story had to do with fatherhood. Like all of us, a flawed earthly parent, but the offer of a perfect heavenly Father. Continue to worship as you hear Matt sing, uh, Our Father. So perfect of an alternate title for the Lord's Prayer, because that sets the tone for the way we approach the King of Kings.